You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM Vancouver. Cookie Monster's favorite radio station. Good night, Chicago! Wednesday afternoon. My name is Tracy Fuller and this is the Arts Report for Wednesday, January 14th. School is back in full swing these days and uh, we had a beautiful, beautiful day out here on the west coast today. Sun was shining, no rain, very little snow. We have almost nothing left from when I had my bike report last week about how to handle the snow. The snow is almost entirely gone from the city, which I think most of us are happy about, but um... But yes, today was a beautiful, beautiful, sunshiny day. And so thank you for being here with me. And uh, let's get right to the show for today. I haven't got as many items on the show this week as I did last week. However, I do think that the content is just as uh, exciting and interesting. So I I hope you agree. Um, But first up, I can hardly believe that it is almost upon us again. But... The 2009 PUSH International Performing Arts Festival will be kicking off next Tuesday. That's right, next January, this January 20th in Vancouver. This annual festival brings visionary, genre-bending, startling, and original artists from Canada and around the world right here to downtown Vancouver. The aim of the festival is to engage and enrich audiences with adventurous contemporary performances while, while uh, promoting cultural exchange and development. Norman Armour is the executive director of the 2009 PUSH Festival, and I reached him earlier today to give us a little bit of the history about the festival and also to give us a preview of what 2009 has in store. So uh, here's our conversation that we had a little earlier today. So, Norman, thanks for speaking with me today. Sure. Um, For listeners who haven't heard of the PUSH Festival before, can you explain what it is? Uh, Well, first off, it's a multidisciplinary festival. It happens uh, annually uh, in this January-February time. It involves artists uh, from from around Vancouver, but also across Canada and uh, internationally. Um, It's a combination of theatre, dance, music, and interdisciplinary... uh, Things. And why would you say it's different from other performing arts festivals that you'd find in other places around Canada or in the world? Well, most festivals tend to be sort of a, a one kind of genre or discipline. It might be a jazz festival or they're solely a dance festival. Uh, and PUSH um, is, is uh, multidisciplinary, so it's a combination of things. Uh, it's also a um, combination of original work uh, from elsewhere, but also work that we've commissioned. It's uh, curated. And then it also, you know, peculiar to out here on the West Coast, it has also a, a sense of the kind of the region, the Cascadia region. So this year we have people from Seattle and Portland, as well as uh, Victoria, Nelson, Calgary. Right. And and the original festival sort of started way back in 2003. Can you can you give me a sense of what kind of different animal it probably was back then compared to what it is now? Uh, well, certainly part of it was, uh, you know, as being a different animal, it was certainly uh, smaller. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact number of pieces, but we might have had, say, five uh, mm-hmm. groups uh, in the festival. This year we have, 
we have uh, 18 uh, shows in the main program, and we also have Club Push, which is completely new, and that is involving 16 different groups and seven indie, uh, indie bands. So it's grown considerably. Um, last year we had 24,000 people attend the festival. Um, we now have a much larger staff. We have a, a certainly a, a, a profile within the city uh, as a as a signature event. Uh, and we also have a very um, uh, vibrant uh, sort of marketplace uh, networking event called the Push Assembly, which happens uh, at the end of the festival for five days. This year it's uh, February 4th to 8th. And that involves that sort of networking, sharing of ideas, new projects and such. And, and we have uh, out-of-town presenters and buyers coming in from across Canada and internationally. Hmm. That's something that, that wasn't around in uh in the beginnings of the festival. Right. And there is an implicit belief behind uh, the festival's mandate, I guess, that does think that exceptional artists really can change the lives and change societies. In this high-tech, high-speed world, do you, do you still think that's the case? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I, the, the festival's interesting this year in the range of work that it has, the, the style, the aesthetics, but also the content. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of it's extremely personal. Some of it's extremely political. Some of it is 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 driven by um, uh, you know an aesthetic or artistic practice interest that has you know a high degree of of, of rigor and purity to it. That 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 in some ways it's very fundamentally um, changing the way people might think about the performing arts or might think about the world around them. It's about perception and other things. So. Um, we really do have a firm belief. I mean, the, the festival is nothing if it's not the artists at the, at the center of it, the work that we program, the work that we help to animate. And we have a number of projects this year that are very much uh, about community engagement, whether it's Cheryl Lirendel's uh, walkabout piece and the CD release that's in, uh, we're um, hosting in partnership with the Grunt Gallery, or That Night Follows Day, which involves 17 kids, ages 8 to 14, with a uh, internationally commissioned script, and this is the English language premiere. Uh, uh, or it's uh, the Children's Choice Awards, which is a follow-up to last year's Haircuts by Children, right. working with uh, kids from, uh, from um, Bridgeview uh, Elementary School in uh, Surrey. So we really do believe in it. You know, art and the artists and the, and the vision and the things that they are wishing to speak to and how they wish to speak to it in a very contemporary way is very much at the center of the festival. Is this why you start off your comment in the push guide with Darwish's quote, live your days and not your dreams? Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, we don't from the beginning kind of say, okay, we're going to program this type of festival and it's going to have this kind of spirit to it and in any given year you know whether it's thematically or a collection of various works but what naturally what happens is is that you know you're drawn to certain things um, serendipity comes to play uh, opportunities to bring in certain artists or present are, are given to you by other presenters who you might be networking with and so what often happens is is that when the program is is is, is locked down and confirmed and one takes a look at it, and one starts to see sort of strains or threads of thematics that are running through it. And the idea of living your days, not your dreams, was was one that seemed to really, really sort of bring forward many of the choices in this year's festival and, and much of the kind of, uh, I guess, ultimately the intent and, uh, uh, of, of this year's programming.
Great. And so for you specifically, is there one highlight or one, one performance that you're really, really looking forward to this year? Well, I'll, I'll, rather than say a single show, a club push. Club push. Is um, you know it's it's got some extraordinary artists in it, um, and as I sort of mentioned earlier, they're, they're certainly from Vancouver, from Seattle, Portland, Victoria, Calgary, Montreal, Toronto, New York, and it's a real um, uh, eclectic group of people who are um, doing work and doing pieces that we feel really benefit from a kind of intimate setting that's got a real energy, a real club feel to it. Right. And um, uh, we've got up on our website, you know, all the links, MySpace stuff, and all of those kinds of things. Uh, but I think it's, it, I think the club has really got a lot to offer. It's very affordable um, at twenty dollars a shot, and mm -hmm. and after eleven, it's free, um, which is when we tend to bring on the indie bands. Mm -hmm. And I really, really encourage people to take a good look and uh, a little background. Uh, look at some of the artists in there. There's some extraordinary artists that we that we have, including the launch of the club on the 27th of February of January, 27th of January, with Taylor Mack, who is just a legend in New York and many other places. And we've got him for two nights. Right. Well, I definitely encourage people to get out there. And thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're you're welcome. And it's great to be working with CITR. And uh, it's another way, you know, for us to make the festival meaningful is to work in partnership with with really stellar organizations in the city, and, and CITR is definitely one of them. So mm -hmm. we're really proud to be working with you guys yeah, this we, year. We appreciate it, and w over the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll definitely be having lots of coverage at The Push, and we hope to see all of our listeners out there. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks. You have a great day now, Norman. Yeah, you too. The 2009 PUSH International Performing Arts Festival starts next Tuesday, January 20th, and runs until February 8th. The perform performances are happening in venues and locations all over the city, so check out the website, pushfestival.ca, and download the brochure to find out how, when, and where you can get involved. Club Push runs from January 27th to February 7th at Performance Works, and it features lots of local and international talents, including CITR, CITR's own DJ Betty Ford, The Awkward Stage, Veda Healy, Jeff Berner, Hooligan Chip, Gunshy, Wood Pigeon, and many, many more. So be sure to get out there and check it out. I will be out there, as will my dance critic Mel Melanie Cooksdorf and my theater critic Paul Riviere. And we will all be coming back in the next couple of weeks with lots of information about what's going on around Vancouver's Push International F Performing Arts Festival. All right. Well, now that my show is an hour long rather than a piddly little half hour, I'm going to take the opportunity to put a little bit more music into the show. And what I'd like to do is each week uh, feature artists who will be performing in Vancouver um, and give you a little taste of what you might be able to head out to the concert halls to see and to support our local artists and uh, maybe the less heard of artists that are always passing through the city and who are always worth listening to. So let's start with a local favorite. Vancouver's Winter Mitts formed way back in 2005. They have two albums under their belts. Their de debut album, Cascadia Fault, was released in 2007. And their new album, Heirloom, came out last year. It brings a bilingual musical chairs approach to instrumentation. And it was produced by Sean Cole from You Say Party, We Say Die and co-produced by Futur from The Be Good Tanya's. Now, on the website, it says, listeners, there is a caution to you. 
It says, listeners beware. Some tracks on this latest winter mitts effort will cause head nodding hypnosis, while others still will leave you wishing you understood French or with the desire to plant a tree in your own front yard. Alors, avec cet avertissement, voici que toi de les winter mitts. Merci beaucoup. That was the Vancouver's Winter Mitts. They will be performing at Richards on Richards this Friday night, and I believe there are tickets available at Zulu and Red Cat Records. So get out there and get those tickets. Uh, they're an excellent group, and God knows we need to hear more accordion on the radio. I, I'm a big fan. Ukulele as well. Bring it on. If anyone out there listening does have a ukulele song that's close to their heart that they want to call in and mention or perhaps write to me here at the Arts Report, you can reach me at arts at citr.ca. Or you can call our listener line at 822-CITR. That's 604-822-CITR. All right, it's time for a quick PSA, but I'll be back in a moment with more of the Arts Report.
Cineworks Independent Filmmaker Society is excited to present The Soft Revolution, an interactive cinematic installation by Vancouver-based media artists Brian Johnson and Anthony Roberts. A three-channel vignette-based film, The Soft Revolution's dramatic and often comedic character-driven vignettes based on the Taoist principles of the I Ching show the pivotal experiences of a year in the life of a vibrant, complicated Gulf Islands family. An immersive cinematic experience, the soft revolution explodes the frame of traditional cinema by allowing for avenues of immediacy and improvisation formerly unattainable in the media of film. The show opens on January 22nd at 7 p.m. at the Interurban Gallery on 1 East Hastings Street. The artists will be in attendance. All right, welcome back to The Arts Report. I'm Tracy Fuller, and this is CITR 101.9 FM. Lives Were Around Me is a new work by Vancouver's very off-the-wall and always intriguing theatre company, uh, Battery Opera. Uh, It's described as an intimate guided tour for for an audience of three, a site-specific roving theatre work that explores the notions of histories and evidence in context of the historic centre of Vancouver. Lives Were Around Me is David McIntosh's Toast to Vancouver, a libation of place and experience utilizing the Corner City Examiner Room. And the show features performances by Adrian Wong, Paul Turns, Alistair Murphy, and the city itself. I had the great pleasure to go out and see a production, one, one of the first productions of Lives Were Around Me last night here in Vancouver. And I was, earlier today I was trying to write out a description to try and tell you or to bring you to the experience that was this piece of theatre. But I, I just kept stumbling over myself, so I'm going to try and give you a quick synopsis right now. What happens is it is a live tour. You show up at the Alibi Room, which is located on Alexander Street on the east, at the east end of Gastown in Vancouver. And there's David McIntosh, the conceiver, director, and host of Lives Were Around Me, uh, is there to meet you. And he brings you out into, very, into the downtown east side and leaves you for a performer to come and collect you. And uh, the performer takes you around, walks you through the dark alleys, along the streets, right into bars and out of bars into other places and leads you into the historic Vancouver Police Museum and tells you a story all along the way. The words, the text of Lives Were Around Me is taken from James Knellman's novel, Translated Accounts. And, um, and it's an eerie, eerie production. You, along with two others, are watching, well not even watching, you are a part of a production. You're told a story of arrival, of uncertainty, of perceptions, and and of how you perceive yourself and how you believe others perceive you. As you see the city again, It last night the moon was an amazing low-rising yellow moon. It hung over the, over the downtown east side as we walked down the streets. And as the performer unraveled his tale, you couldn't help but think that you were transported all the way back to perhaps the 1800s, the 1900s, when people were coming here with nothing and hoping to start their lives anew. I had the very great pleasure of getting David McIntosh, as I said, he's the who conceived, directed, and hosts Lives Were Around Me on the phone earlier today. 
because I wanted to ask him a couple questions about the performance. And uh, this is our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, David. Thanks for speaking with me today. You're welcome, Tracy. Starting off, can you first take me right back to the moment when you conceived the idea for Lives Were Among Me? I suppose that um, I've always been interested in in the intersection of, of the idea of history and uh, people's actual lived lives. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of an ongoing obsession for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, how aspects of people's lives end up being um, framed and presented as either inhibited, uh, evidence or, or history by different, uh, different agendas and, and different uh, periods of time. Mm-hmm. So that was, that's kind of an ongoing obsession. Right, but when did the text by James Kalman come upon you, or were you already thinking of the space in the downtown east side and wanting to bring a tour, an event, to that place? Uh, no, not particularly. Um, I'm fairly familiar with the downtown east side. I've always lived and worked in that area. I read, uh, uh, I've read other James Kalman, but I, I read that particular, um, the text is from a novel called Translated Accounts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I read that, and I was particularly struck with the um, uh, how the through the density and the and the kind of atypical grammar of the text, how I guess the idea of of how you um, impose on others your your assumptions on how they view you. Mm-hmm. So it's that whole negotiation of of who am I um, to other people, or who am I to the society, or mm-hmm. how do I um, identify myself. And, and through doing that, there's a lot of assumptions and uh, uh, kind of power relationships. So I, I read that text and I was quite excited. And then I just happened, uh, while reading that, to also walk into the police museum one day. And I'd been there before, but then when I went in uh, this time, uh, because it's a, a fairly, it wasn't a heavily frequented museum and, mm-hmm. and the exhibits are mostly from the 50s and 60s, it had a, uh, a, a really interesting aura, mm-hmm. and uh, and with the police exhibits themselves, because they were largely created by retired police officers, there is definitely uh, the agenda of the of the police was, was quite present in, in how they they wanted to uh, portray themselves or or explain or justify the, the kind of work they did. So that right away I, I saw. Um, an overlaying of, of those two ideas on each other. I was quite excited by that. And then later on in the, in the museum, there's there's some exhibits that um, I find them to be almost like shrines of, uh, of memories, of, of actual police officers' uh, memories of, of either cases or crimes that particularly affected them. Right. And because it was when it was made, they, they simply would just take the evidence basically steal the evidence and create a display out of it. Mm-hmm. So I guess you can't do it now. But they, they had, um, so those displays had, a, had an incredible, um, mm. well, they, they had a certain weight to them. They, they were, I found them to be quite, uh, kind of beautiful, like the, mm-hmm. uh, from a, uh, an emotional standpoint, like these cases had really affected these, these uh, police officers. So they, it was, the, the cases were not so much about, or the displays were really about um, I think the police officers' relationships to their work and to these these cases in particular. Mm-hmm. So I was really struck by that and other things right. in the museum. That, and I so I saw the uh, the intersection of, of those ideas in in that space and time. Definitely. 
Yes, um, and intimacy plays such a, a major role in this production because it, it is performed for usually a maximum of only three people. Why why did you decide to, to make it that intimate? Why why bring only a few people or let a few only a few people in on this conversation or on in on this performance? Well, well I think when you when you walk through an area or uh, and you're going as a group, you with an audience of three with the it's possible to, to create like a quartet between the performer and the the audience, so they all interact and they, they create a specific experience that doesn't intrude or disrupt on, on the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So that that's mostly why it's, it's limited to three. If you had uh, more people, I, I think it uh, it's harder to share an experience without. Uh, I guess in, the, in this piece, I'm, I wasn't interested in um, displaying in, in kind of a proscenium way, or uh, you know, telling you what to look at or telling you uh, what to feel. So with a smaller audience and, and one performer, you can you can kind of just share an experience or, or negotiate that a little bit easier than with a larger group. Mm -hmm. And without the the sort of box theater mentality, for an audience member at least, there is sort of a question in your mind whether you should be devoting your entire attention to the space of the actor and the space where the performance is emanating from or how you interact with your own freedom to engage in what's going on around you, what you pay attention to. I yeah. found that very interesting. Yeah, those, and those tensions are, are very interesting to me as well. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been upstaged, perhaps, by the space? Uh, there's a part of the, of the production goes through a, a live bar where seemingly none of the people who are there playing pool or drinking their drinks have anything to do with the, with the story being told or walking down uh, Hastings, etc. Um, I wouldn't say we've been upstaged because uh, that the possibility of other people intruding or or other thoughts intruding into a performance it's kind of it's welcomed. I mean, it's a it's a reality. So, is there ever a, a concern of safety? Because the last tour does leave at ten o'clock at night and with a small group of uh -huh. people, perhaps. Well, maybe sometimes looking a little more out of place than others in the in the area. Is there ever has there been a concern for the safety of both your the people who are in the production as well as the audience? Um, no, I, I think that, was a, that is a question that, that we consider. But I think that's why the smaller group is more, um, it's, it is less intrusive. Right. And, uh, you know, I think we've been there long enough, so we're interacting with that block and with those areas. So th there is interaction. But I, I think, you know, in, mo in most places, people are, are respectful of other people's privacy to a certain extent. And that, that holds true, I think, it, in, in that area as well. Definitely. So baggage, be it physical or emotional baggage, is also, also sort of struck me as a, a theme. Why do you want to draw our attention to what we carry with us, whether it's uh, perceptions or um, physical items? Uh, yeah, because that's what we, uh, I think we, we carry uh, with us our, our perceptions and uh, our lives and what we assume to be ourselves that often uh, get translated into objects. Mm -hmm. We carry like our, your key to your house or your wallet or your bag, the things that identify you. We carry that around and uh, we inevitably project the person we think we are in, into, into our surroundings. And we see things and other people in, in that light. And so we end up, uh, you know, we frame our environment and our, our reality mm -hmm. uh, according to what we're, what we're carrying, the ideas or, or our perceptions. And so is this why you pass out uh, the evidence statement to each audience member at the end 
of the production? What, what is it you hope that they will do with it? They can do whatever they like with it. It's just a, it's an imitation, I think. It's an, uh, to, to, to take the experience they've had over the hour and, um, and reinterpret it themselves and translate it into uh, whatever they like, uh, a brief description or a, a poem. Um, just so they, to acknowledge that, that that's what the audience does anyway. You, you translate your, your perceptions of a performance into, into ideas. Or, uh, so it's just an invitation for you to go ahead and do that. You don't have to uh, wait for me to tell you what happened. Right. You can okay. describe it yourself. And then you could also you know, think about those ideas. of. of um, Would you like to receive some of them back, perhaps? What would happen if one arrived in the mail, would you be? I'd, I'd be very delighted if, if uh, they arrived in the mail, sure. <laughs> so I might use it for something else. Or <laughs> well, there you go. I yeah, sometimes people give it to us, or they give it to the, uh, some of the women in the, in the alibi. Right. How did you gain access to all these places? Was it simple to approach the police museum and the, and the bar and the alibi room and say, I, I have this per performance that I, uh, that I want to put on. Can, can I use your space? Yeah, that's basically it. You it was just it. That's fantastic. <laughs> I imagine other places might give you more of a barrier. Yeah, I guess you have to figure out how how your uh, ideas can uh, can coexist with those spaces, right, without causing them too much grief. Right. Uh, I guess my last question is: you you play the role of the host in the evening, and you lead each audience to the location where the story approximately begins. And along the way, once or twice, you mention you can't believe everything you hear. Or you can't understand everything you, you hear. You can't understand everything you hear. Can you, why, why did you choose this cryptic phrase? You, you've said, you said it at least twice when we were en route. Why is this the preface? Um, like I said, the idea is uh, our, our perceptions and our understanding of, of where we are and uh, uh, who we are are based on fragments. And uh, you're not, we're not really able to understand the, the totality, the totality of, of those ideas or, or those narratives of the people around you or of, of the space around you, how it was built, uh, uh, why it was built, how it's changed. So the idea of history and the idea of identity, uh, you know, both I think individually and culturally, civically, nationally, it's, uh, it's really ungraspable. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. And, and the also, also what I was trying to um, just to, uh, offer that as a, a way of possibly, uh, I'd be interested in how you took it, alleviating the, um, some of the anxiety I think that people have when they go to a performance mm -hmm. or, or they engage with any kind of art that they, they have to get it, they have to understand it. Right. Um, I think specifically for this production at least, as audience members, we're putting our, ourselves into your hands in a much more um, risk-taking way because we have no idea where you're leading us. And, um, yeah, and you signed a waiver. <laughs> yes, 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 you do, as soon as you walk in. Um, I, and how did you find that? Did you? I, was, I was fine with that. I, 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 I think I prefer to attend pieces that challenge me, that, that make me take risks that perhaps I would not have otherwise taken, and also to make me look at a street that I may have biked down 10 million times and see it again for the first time. Yeah, uh -huh. I think that that's part of theater. Part of the wonder of theater for me is just that you suspend your belief and you share a common performance, even if it's the same performance over and over and over and over and over again, um, like the Phantom of the Opera or something like that. For that one block of time, it's you and a number and whoever happen, however many people happen to be in the audience, sharing with those performers on stage in real time 
an experience, a story. And it's it allows you to suspend your disbelief in a way that I don't think comes across on television anymore. And uh, just to imagine together the possibilities that come out of whatever is said and received. So... So I definitely, I, I felt permission to do a lot of things, and then there were times during the during the tour, I guess, that I was a little more frightened. Not frightened for my safety or for anything like that, but just because I had no idea where it was going or how I was supposed to respond. Not that I feel that there is any way that anyone has to respond to art, but the risks were there, and, and, they, were, and they were pushed sometimes, and other times... I was pushing them. But it was a fascinating experience, and I would encourage all of our listeners to get out there and, and definitely check it out. Yeah, do, sure. <laughs> do they, it's running every Tuesday at the Alibi Room until f- when? At the end of February, the last Tuesday in February. Okay. Every Tuesday in January and February. Okay. Well, thank you, David, so much, and uh, best of luck with the rest of the performances. Well, thank you very much. No problem. As I said, Lives Were Around Me is the newest theater work from Battery Opera's David McIntosh. And it runs every Tuesday, every Tuesday in January and February, with hourly departures from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the Alibi Room. That's 158 Alexander Street. Now, a note, um, this performance is not suitable for younger audience and no minors will be admitted. Um, but tickets are $26 for adults and $18 for students, and they are available, th- available through TicketsTonight.com. All right, time for another piece of music. Uh, Woven Hand is a band from Denver, Colorado, and they will be headlining a show at, Biltmore, at the Biltmore this Saturday night. Woven Hand's music combines elements of alternative country, post-rock, punk, industrial music, folk rock, old-time music, and Native American music, among others. And Wikipedia describes them their music as dark, gloomy, dreamy, organic, and atmospheric. And uh, definitely after going through the lives were around me uh, theater experience, I felt that this song, which is off of uh, Woven Hand's new album, Ten Stones, uh, would be a perfect fit for the previous interview. It's called Quiet Night, uh, Quiet Nights of Quiet Stars, and I hope you enjoy it. Flicker of life's 
In 1963, French artist Robert Filio declared that on January 17th, art was born one million years ago when someone dropped a dry sponge into a bucket of water. Okay. Who that man was is not important. He is dead, but art lives on. He comes from southern France, Filio. Many artists and art organizations celebrate the birthday of art each year on January 17th. This awareness makes you feel good. We feel good. Now, I will electrify the grid. Saturday, January 17th, CITR 101.9 Vancouver unwraps another 24 hours of radio art. Art's 1,046th birthday. Um. Saturday, midnight to midnight at CITR 101.9 FM. Online at CITR.ca. After hearing all of these things, you're probably saying, what's the use of going on? There's no hope. You are listening to CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. From far and wide we come to ride our bikes up to the oil. So glad to find such cheerful kindness you before the fall. When the new world order crashes, will we see the light? Why wait till then? The time is now. Come on, everybody, let's bike. That's the theme music to a new documentary film called To the Tar Sands and that will be playing in Vancouver next week. The film follows a group of 19 young environmentalists as they cycle over 13,000 kilometers northbound across Alberta to witness the impacts of Alberta's tar sands boom firsthand. They talk to farmers, moms and dads, an urban planner, oil industry workers, the chiefs of a First Nations community, and others along the way. And their question is simple. How has the tar sands boom affected you? The answers they receive reveal much more than they expected. Gains and losses, to be sure, but also the environmentalists' own complicity in Alberta's rush to develop the tar sands. I've got a little bit of the uh, teaser here for you. Uh, this is To the Tar Sands. Everywhere we go, everyone's saying that there's no possible 
chance for change. But since they see us, they, they have hope. We're just like some students who are just like biking across Alberta. We have to be involved with the sphere of oil industry in order to be credible. We need to work with them, we need to talk to them, we need them to listen to us. I think the rest of the world and the rest of Canada needs to be part of this debate. It has impacts beyond Alberta's borders. Our trip has both a final destination and a roadmap to get there. We are taking our time and we are prepared to amend our course along the way. We ask, can Alberta say the same? The oil industry has really made Alberta what it is today, for positive and for negative. We're not activists, you know, we're just ordinary families, moms and dads, you know, just trying to do the best for our families. This community's success is, is tied to the oil science development, and it's, that's the only option we have. It's a boom for few on farms. Where's the boom? If I'm lobbying some government to do something about climate change, it's a lot more abstract. It doesn't feel as real. This feels really... Jody Martinson directed and produced To the Tar Sands. A native of Calgary, Jody graduated from McGill's School of Environment and later studied film at the Berkeley Digital Film Institute in California. She is working towards her Master's of Journalism degree right here at UBC. And Jody has joined me in the CITR studios this afternoon. Thank you so much for being here, Jody. Thank Jody. you. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me. No problem. So uh, please start off by... Um, Telling me, how, how did this project come about? Yeah, well, I, I was interested in the tar sands. Um, I remember hearing about it actually when I was still in Montreal, mm -hmm. and, um, and Elizabeth May came to speak. And that, at that time, she was still involved with the Sierra Club, um, not at, at her post now as the Green uh, Party leader. And I remember her, her saying, um, this is the biggest environmental issue in Canada. Mm -hmm. and, and I had never heard of it. And yet, as an Albertan yeah. that cares about environmental issues, mm -hmm. I was kind of ashamed. Right. So I spent the next year um, digging into it as much as I could. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I made my first little documentary right. and, and kind of suffered all of the bumps that come uh -huh. along with that. And what was that one about? It was about recycling at McGill, okay. and uh, we kind of did an investigative report into why recycling wasn't working there mm -hmm. for a university that prides itself on, on environmental responsibility, both right. you know, educating students but also practicing it, mm -hmm. and, um, and we found some real inconsistencies, and so we, we did a little expose on that and learned a, a lot about kind of the craft through trial and error, right. and it was a bit of a crash course, and so... Um, so going from that, I, I had it in my mind to make a film about the tar sands. And at that point, they had, no one was really talking about them. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I, I, you know, wrote up a few things and sent them off to to try to raise some money for it, and really to no success. Mm. And during that time, the tar sands exploded in the media. Right. And so everyone was talking about them, and they were the big environmental issue, just like Elizabeth May had said would happen. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I'll shelve this project because there's far better documentary filmmakers making stories about this right now. And I'll come back to it. I'll keep it in my mind. I'll come back to it in 30 years and it's not <laughs> going to go away. And then out of the blue, I got an email from a friend who said, we're organizing this bike trip mm -hmm. to raise awareness, but also to learn about the tar sands mm -hmm. across Alberta. And uh, we want someone to come with a camera and film it. So... I said, okay, well, um, I think I'm going to quit my job <laughs> and, and go on this trip. And then a few weeks later, uh, we were there starting the trip. Amazing. And how did this group of nine, it was 19 plus you? 
19 oh, including me including yeah. you how did how did the original 18 let's say come together to decide that this is the way that they wanted to a educate themselves but b spread this message uh, one of the the key organizers was a, a guy named Tim Murphy mm -hmm. who's actually going to be at the screenings next week great um, and he he is based out of Montreal and he's done a lot of work with the Sierra Youth Coalition around climate change and they began to realize that you can't address climate change without first talking about the tar sands. Mm -hmm. They're set to become Canada's greatest source of growing greenhouse gas emissions. Hmm. Um, they're, they're the huge elephant in the room. Right. And so anything that we try to do um, about climate change in Canada is ineffectual unless we address the tar sands. Mm -hmm. So he decided that um, he would organize this cross-Alberta bike trip and that he would get um, as many young people as possible to come along and explore with him. And he saw us as, uh, as journalists mm -hmm. and as fact-finders more than as activists. But, of course, activism was a huge part of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they kind of came together over the Internet over the course of the year. We had people from as far away as... Uh, um, we had an American from the East Coast. We had uh, people from Halifax, people from Vancouver, of course. And then we had... Even one guy from California who happened to meet one of the cyclists on the train mm -hmm. and, and on his way to, to join us and had a bike with him and decided <sighs> he was just going to join up. And well. I remember listening to him do an interview with the media on our first day. And he said, yeah, we're cycling to Fort McMurphy. He, <laughs> he had no idea, but it oh, was dear. just... And now he's, he's become one of the biggest hmm. advocates in the group about uh, tar sands education and that sort of thing in the state. So Great. Well, I mean, what, 1,300 miles, yes? Or kilometers. Kilometers. Yep. And what, what were some, of, can you share some, what were some of the challenges along the way? Not only physical challenges, but I, watching the film, there's so many emotional roller coaster, uh, there's quite an emotional roller coaster ride that goes on as well. Mm -hmm. Because this learning process does reveal a lot more about them, about yourself, our, ourselves as individuals, as well as those people who are being affected and the families you speak to. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, that's, that's really, um, really true. We had, uh, I think a lot of us were young people in a bit of an in-between stage of our mm -hmm. lives. Um, a lot were either coming out of university, um, going into universities, figuring out, you know, what kind of careers we want, mm -hmm. um, but also trying to answer some really fundamental questions about what kind of world we want. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I guess, at the heart of, of activism. And so what we um, experienced was a bunch of, you know, internal and, and battles with each other about how to do this, how to talk about the tar sands, how to deal with people who, um, you know, we, we were really... Uh, aligned with the workers in Alberta and we didn't want to say shut down the tar sands you know tomorrow because we knew that meant that lots of people in Alberta were unemployed right. and it had rippling effects all across Canada mm -hmm. and so we had all these you know conflicting pressures and and concerns to deal with so that was on the outside but then also within us it was a big question about how can we best affect change? Mm -hmm. How can we deal with the complexity of a climate that demands that we stop burning carbon, mm -hmm. and yet um, a, an economy that requires jobs for people? Mm -hmm. So all those sorts of things we're, we're really wrestling with on the trip. And, and then we, of course, had a diversity of opinions. Definitely. And how to make a, a film about it was mm -hmm. a, another question. How to, um, you know, how to raise awareness, what we should say to the media, all mm -hmm. of that. 
You've raised so many interesting points because, I mean, I think that that's a, a space that a lot of and I don't want to say just young people, but a lot of people are coming to mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. when, uh, depending on whether you're between jobs or just finishing school or wherever you are in your life, people are trying to figure out how to best live their lives and how, how to devote yourself to causes you believe in, which more and more people, thankfully, are believing that things need to change in the way that we are living our lives and how the world is being run and and how we take care of our environment and what that means. Um, and I think I, coming at it, at the end of the film, I'm, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not going to give anything away, so to speak, but it speaks to me as such a discussion piece. And I, I'm really glad to hear that there will be discussions after both of the screenings mm -hmm. next week because it's really just a jumping off point, That's I right. think. That's right. And that's, you know, the other thing, to speak to the point, it's not just young people. Um, we thought maybe we'd attract a lot of young people along the way. Mm -hmm. And repeatedly, we found that it was people about our, our parents or even our grandparents' ages who were meeting with us. Mm -hmm. And so there was a real um, transferring of, of knowledge, if I, can, if I can be so bold to say no. that. And, and the other thing that was happening was um, we were really humbled by... A lot of us live in cities, mm -hmm. and so when we organize or, or protest or talk about things like the tar sands, it's in a really um, theoretical frame of mind. And so we can talk about uh, climate change, and we talk globally about that. Mm -hmm. um, when when you're dealing with something that's happening in your backyard, as so many people are, especially mm -hmm. in northern Alberta, um, it's a different it's a different fight. Yeah. And so that was one of the things that was most um, humbling for us and mm -hmm. some of the most you know powerful interviews we did or, or moments that we spent with people um, were were people who have de oil development going on in their backyards saying things like I didn't want to be an activist I'm a mom yeah and and I don't you know I I don't like that my phone rings every time I'm having dinner mm -hmm. with my children for mm -hmm. for you know a comment on the tar sands or for a um, a meeting, or you know, all these things that that local activists deal with, right. that those of us who who are in cities don't so much. I guess uh, something that people might listening might not understand, and which you get a really good sense of through the film, is just what it looks like when you get up there to Fort McMurray, and how this is just. We do deal with these issues with uh, global warming and uh, the tar sands, unless you're there no one has much of an idea of what this looks like and what it is like. Can you try and explain what, what you found when you finally arrived way, way up there? Sure, yeah. Um, we actually did a, an airplane ride over it. Mm -hmm. So we, we both cycled um, through the highway, on the highway, through the tar sands, and then we uh, did a tour by air. And we were all, I think, fairly prepared for it to be a bit of a lunar landscape. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a pretty accurate... Uh, statement on on what it looks like from the ground, mm -hmm. but from the air, it looks. We're quite used to seeing environmental destruction from the air because yeah. we fly over, um, you know, fields. We fly over cities, and everything's very gridlocked and mm -hmm. patterned. So we're, I think, we're quite used to that. But what was um, surprising to us about the air flight was that it was it was expansive, but it was only a fraction of what is proposed and already approved. Hmm. And then, of course, this, the oil sands are now beginning to be developed in Saskatchewan. And Saskatchewan is having a lot of conversation about how to develop their oil sands. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really just a drop in the bucket at this point. Right. And it is already that big. Um, so that was something that, that was 
startling to us. Mm-hmm. Um, along the way, you did you were able to actually witness some of the response and like some positive effects that your route took. Specifically, I think it was Lake um, Murray Lake. Lake Murray Lake. That's yes, right. exactly. Can you describe what happened there, and then I I'll ask you another question. Sure. We. Um we were just outside of Alberta there, or outside of Edmonton, excuse me. There's a, a town called uh, Fort Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. And Fort Saskatchewan is the site of a bunch of upgraders where the oil kind of goopy bitumen is, is um, upgraded into a more usable form. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes the air quality in Fort Saskatchewan is worse than anywhere else in North America. Really? And sometimes it's... Uh, they they have all sorts of concerns about when something goes wrong, there's an alert system, but local people have said that that alert system doesn't seem to work very well. Hmm. Um, so when we were there, uh, that's also where actually the, the premier of Alberta is, is based. Hmm. So when we were there, there was a, a group of cottagers who were um, organizing a protest about a different form of, of oil production, um, which is... Uh, which is being done in Alberta, and and they wanted to protest in front of Stelmac's office, and so we organized with them and and met them, and um, and then it was a you know a, a, it was quite a visually interesting um, protest. They had lots of young children and gram- grandmas mm-hmm. there, saying this is our cottage. And yeah, there, there's a wonderful scene where you actually focus in on all the feet stamping in this office, and you see little little sandals, and then you see big uh, trouser shoes yeah. and it's it's just really effective to know to see the multi generations that that's, are involved in this fight that's right and and um they they had a so they they you know they protested and and they'd been raising these issues over a period of time so it was not just this one protest but within the the week um the decision was overturned to allow this oil exploration on mm-hmm. this lake and um and and they wrote us a nice email saying that they they were grateful for the part we could play in that mm-hmm. and was was that an isolated event along the way or i mean i imagine i know that the that the trip resounded and that there were many uh that m- there must have been much much action after the fact, but while you were on the trip, was there that response? Did you get a feeling like what you were doing was making a difference? Yeah, we did. And and one of the things that was um, surprising to us was we kept being told by people, "Oh, you give us so much hope," or "We've been fighting this for years in Alberta, and we thought no one in Toronto or in uh, the the Maritimes cared about it." Mm-hmm. And so people coming from and and you know I was the only Albertan on the trip actually so really? it was it was people from all across the country and um so th- they there was a real sense that you uh young people being here shows us that you care shows us that you support um the work that local activists do in Alberta mm-hmm. and that you want to understand the issue more so that was mm-hmm. that was a, a really encouraging thing as far as you know radical changes in how the tar sands have, are being developed I, we we didn't succeed in in changing anything about that mm-hmm. and um people still work on it mm-hmm. um the cyclists another kind of group of cyclists with some returning uh cycled again this past summer hmm. and this time they took a different route slightly different route starting in Fort Chippewa right. which is uh where the the largest kind of where a bunch of the health effects are beginning to be felt. They're downstream of the tar sands, the First Nations community. And and they um, screened the film and met with people and, and did a lot of more awareness mm-hmm. uh, campaign, a lot more of an activist campaign than what, what we did, which was a fact-finding mission right. more than anything. Um, so that that continues. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then 
on this tour right now that uh, the film has been going across the country, and um, it's it's going along with a book that was written by Tim Murphy, one of the cyclists, right. about the the experience, and it outlines it in a much more uh, you know details about how how various processes are interlinked and things like that. So there's a lot of information in that book as well. Great. Well, um, I'm running short on time, so I'll just ask you one more question. Is uh, I guess what what do you fi- hope people will take away from the film when they see it, when they come out next week? I really hope that it, it starts a, a dialogue that that crosses um, groups. And in in Alberta, we were surprised that the the big bad Albertan doesn't seem to um, be as as prevalent as the media would have us mm-hmm. think. There aren't those people who are, um, you know, tearing down the highway on there with their their SUV and eating oil. The, right. the, all the kind of ways that we see Albertans, um, they're actually people that care about their natural world and care about the future for their of their um, of their province for their children and mm-hmm. and the sorts of things that we all I think share across Canada mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And so. Um, so what was terrific is that we were surprised by who cares, mm-hmm. surprised by the support we had from Albertans. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's the, the real message is that it's not an us against them. Mm-hmm. It's climate change affects us all. We're all tied into this economy that relies so heavily on carbon, mm-hmm. and we need to figure out a way to do it better all together. Yes, I completely agree. Well, it's a fantastic film, Jody. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Jody Martinson's film, again, is called To the Tar Sands, and it will be playing twice next week in Vancouver. The first screening will take place next Monday, January 19th, from 7 to 9 p.m. at the K. Meek Center in West Vancouver. And then it will play again next Tuesday, January 20th, uh, right here on campus at UBC. Now, that's easy, people, so come on out. It's from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. in the Hennings Building, room 202. That's at the corner of Agricultural Road and East Mall. All right, well, that brings me almost to the very end of the Arts Report for this week. I really, really, really thank all of you for joining me, as usual. Um, It's been a pleasure to uh, host the show. Next week, we'll have a whole bunch of uh, push reviews. I've got Paul Riviere will be coming back with um, the new Miss Julie production review. My dance re- critic will be out there. I will have a special report on the can- new Canadian art magazine's uh, review of Art Schools in Canada by Amy Zion, my arts uh, correspondent, let's say. But until then, if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach, always reach me here at CITR. My name is Tracy Fuller, and the email is arts at citr.ca. And otherwise, I hope you stay warm and stay well, and I will see you next week right back here on Wednesday on The Arts Report. Thanks for listening. <laughs>